Hello again, and welcome back to Worst Church Ever, the show that rolls its sleeves up to play in the mud with Yahweh, even though our fundamentalist neighbor thinks we ought to keep that holy action at a distance and call God Elohim. It's only episode four, and here we are already with the self-referential jokes. Who do we think we are anyway? Dave Eggers? We'll settle for a punchline, even one, ending up on Tim McSweeney's, but alas, we're not sure who that site is really for. Today, we continue our look at Genesis 2, the creation of a man and a woman, the planting of those primeval people in a garden, and the repercussions of their encounter with a talking snake. You're a wizard, Harry. Welcome, sisters, brothers, and sibs, wizards, muggles, and squibs to Worst Church Ever. This is Episode 4, Every New Beginning, Part 2. In the last episode, we focused on the different names for God used by two hypothetical sources, J and E, and I suggested that while there's no longer the same kind of consensus on the so-called documentary hypothesis as there once was, it's still a method I find helpful, especially when thinking about the use of God's personal name, Yahweh. We talked about how Yahweh means something like I am, or I am that I am, or I am who I will be, and that this sort of shifting meaning is, after all, a pretty good echo in limited human terms of God's eternal nature, remembering that the word eternal and the word everlasting are two different things. Eternal suggests timelessness, an existence outside of time, a non-temporality that I suggest pulls on all experiences and all accounts of God bending into space and time like a holy gravity well. John Milton's Nativity Ode expresses this idea rather brilliantly, and even though it's May, since time is both a real dimension, maybe, and at the same time, well, a social construct, it's okay to go read Milton's Christmas Ode right now to see what I mean. God breaks into the temporal order, and all kinds of shit goes down. The good kind of shit, the kind of shit Paul talks about in Philippians. Spoiler alert, that's not just rubbish. In the last episode, we juxtaposed the J source, or the J tradition, if you like, uh, that account of creation in chapter 2 with the account we find in chapter 1 of Genesis, which I said was probably ease the Elohists because of the use of the term Elohim for God. I failed to say that many scholars believe Genesis 1 is actually from the priestly tradition because it presents the kind of orderly action we expect to see in ritual worship. A few notes on that. Number one, I completely failed while talking about the priestly source to make a 90210 joke, and for that I beg your pardon and am open to your penitent suggestions. Number two, just because something is orderly doesn't mean it's priestly. I have no vested interest in proving Genesis 1 is Elohist, that's the e-source, but as someone who lives with obsessive-compulsive order every single day, let me say that orderliness and cleanliness is not as close to godliness as some a-holes think. I actually believe that much of what we see recounted as ritual law throughout the Bible comes directly from priestly OCD, the real kind, the kind I have, not the kind that people think is a superpower. That kind does not exist. OCD is always terrible, and the fear of fucking up, of getting the ritual wrong, or, if you like, of having the wrong theology, well, I think that accounts for an awful lot of what we see in priestly and other religious texts. With that said, it's not just priests who are interested in order, and with that said, it's also very possible 
that the priestly source redacted the Eloist account and made it culminate with the importance of Sabbath observation. The stress on Sabbath seems to be a far better indication of priestly lurking than shoehorning the six-day narrative into some reconstructed liturgy. But that's fine, too. Now, back to the text at hand, Genesis 2, 4-7, which, for our purposes, descends from Yahweh's traditions. Verse 4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. I can't help but think these are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. But this way of talking about generations of creation is another way of saying this is an account of the creation and what happened after. Since originally the Bible had no chapter and verse divisions, it's a judgment call as to whether this sentence is meant to cap the story from chapter 1 or to introduce the way the story goes in chapter 2. And look, I understand there are all kinds of ways that we could cast these two accounts in harmony, and that's fine. I can accept, though I don't feel the need to, that chapter 1 is about the high-level stuff and chapter 2 is the nitty-gritty. If for now you have to make that kind of move, go right ahead. That's certainly what redactors seem to have had in mind. But when I insist that there, are, when I insist that there are two accounts, it's not because I can't figure out a theological way to make them into one, but because the shift from Elohim to Yahweh Elohim is rather jarring. A multitude of witnesses is, to me, a strength and not a weakness. Some might say, well, then the Bible's not authoritative. And to them I say, the Bible is a witness, a collection, really, of witnesses bound in time, trying their best to share the ripples of the timeless living God moving among them. I'd say that's what we do now. And sometimes the Bible is other things, even bad things, and sometimes so is church. The next lines say, In that day Yahweh Elohim made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. For Yahweh Elohim had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. That's the end of verse 5. Just going to stop there for a second. It's not just that there's no rain, but even if there were, there's still no one to farm the dell. So, all God can do is pour some tea for two and speak God's point of view. And no, I'm not just talking about blind melon. The e-source in chapter one has God creating humankind through speech. The j-source has God making us from dust. More on that in just a second. Verse six, but a stream would rise up from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. That's the end of verse 7. Here, of course, we see clear knowledge of agriculture. There's still no one to till the ground because God has not yet made people. And then there's a description of some cosmological beliefs about rain that reflect an arid agricultural setting at the time of composition. Then God, Yahweh, Elohim, takes that same dry ground, and its dryness is amplified by all that talk of water, the idea that as of yet there's been no rain, and Yahweh Elohim makes a man. There's a play here on the Hebrew words for man, Adam, and ground, Adama, which Robert Alter preserves in his translation, where God makes a human out of the hummus. And then God breathes the breath of life into this Adam, into this human, into this person. As we said in the last episode, this is an up-close, super-imminent God, one who uses God's own hands 
to craft a person from lifeless dust, one who breathes God's own breath into Adam, Adam if you like, into his nostrils. This is earthy stuff, no pun intended, and for Christians, it might anticipate the hands-on work of Christ, the healing of the blind man through the medium of mud, the incarnation of God itself, God's birth in grime and squalor. From verse 7, the narrative lectionary skips ahead to verse 15. The Lord God, again, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And Yahweh Elohim commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. And from there, the lectionary moves us to the inevitable chapter 3, which begins like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the man, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both were opened, and they themselves knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh Elohim among the trees of the garden. Now that's where the lectionary selection ends for the week. And this is for the first week of September 2021. Uh, it's interesting to me that the narrative lectionary skips over the creation of Eve. She just appears in the story. Um, in short, Adam is lonely and God decides to create a companion, a helper, because the text calls Eve a helper and claims that she is fashioned from Adam's rib, and again, that's the J-Source account, the Chapter 2 account, the hands-on God doing hands-on things. But because of her being referred to in this way, her creation story has been used to prop up patriarchy, misogyny, abuse. That's what happens when you only care about what the text says in good old English or whatever your vernacular might be. That's what happens when you've got an agenda, and that's what happens when you're an asshole. Obviously, there are themes of subordination extant here in the text, in the contours, really, of the story. However, the word that we translate as helper is used other places in the Hebrew Bible, and always with reference to God as helper. That puts Eve in decent company. Furthermore, the text seems to indicate that if humankind is the pinnacle of creation, and that certainly seems to be one of the messages from chapter 1, then creation is not complete until humans find themselves in community with one another. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Christianity doesn't happen until God, God's self, submits to becoming bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. In the story of Eve's creation, she is birthed, quote-unquote, from Adam. She is robbed, so to speak, of the birthing role Mary, the mother of Christ, is instrumental, of course, 
in God's own journey to flesh and bone. Now, this is not meant to supervalue the act of giving birth in any sort of fundamental way, but I think in terms of who was writing the scripture and when they were writing and who their audiences were, there's something interesting at play in the idea that man is not born from woman, but woman is born from man. Again, that's been used, misused, and abused in all kinds of ways to prop up all kinds of injustice, and really it's not what the text is about. Now, the narrative lectionary also bypasses the narrative fallout of what people have come to call the fall. I don't mean the season. Now, just imagine with me for a second that you're a parent and your child goes and does the very thing you just got done telling her not to do. You're going to kick her right out of the house, right? Seven, eight years old. You're going to disown her because that's love, right? You're going to expel her from your home because, because, no, because of course you're not. Here's the thing. The text doesn't really tell us why God banishes Eve and Adam from the garden. Yes, we know it's because they were disobedient, but why is that such a deal breaker? The scripture doesn't actually say. Certain strains of Jewish and Christian theology do that by adding to the text. Just like Eve apparently added the prohibition to touching the fruit, even though God only said they couldn't eat the fruit. It reminds me, frankly, of the traditions of hedging scripture's commandments with extra human ones designed to keep us far away from brushing up against the edge of sin. As we see here, it doesn't work. Even in paradise, even with every need met. Think of all the ways our various religious traditions spinning out of Genesis try to do the same thing. We build complex, systematic theologies to try to explain why God did what God is claimed to have done. God can't be in the presence of sin, so everyone is screwed. The funny thing is, most people who believe that also believe that God is omnipotent. God can do anything, it seems, except love humankind enough to forgive us in the moment, in the garden. No. And look, I get it, we do inherit sin, just not like this. We are mired in what you might call original sin, but not because our mythic millionth great-great-great-grandparents ate a piece of fruit. We're mired in sin because sin aggregates in every human system. If you've ever watched The Good Place, you know what I mean. The unintended, unintended consequences happen. Mike sure didn't make that up. Check out Carl Rahner. He talked over 50 years ago about the fact that you can't even buy a piece of fruit, there's that theme again, without participating in the aggregated sin that brought your bananas, oranges, quinoa to market. Genesis is describing that predicament. It's not describing literal history, even though the actual history that it's standing in for tells the same inevitable story. People screw up and there are repercussions. If God's ability to love us was based on ranks and points, we'd all be at the bottom. There's no other way. But what if the knowledge of good and evil is a curse precisely because it renders us aware of this predicament? Because it freezes us, ties us up in knots, makes us completely ineffective, scares us well to death. Hard to enjoy the garden if you're always afraid to step out on the grass. Let's go even further. What if God is free, in God's perfect freedom, to love us even though we've sinned? 
even though we bought the wrong banana, even though we ate the fruit. What if we stopped looking for theological answers in dogmatic formulas and geometric proofs and decided to believe that God is free and that God is free to love? What if we decided to believe that we who call ourselves Christians follow Jesus because his words and deeds and ethics match the longings of our hearts because he points us away from the hedged bets of religion and into something better, something deeper, something more? Maybe that's just me. This is, after all, the self-proclaimed, self-identifying worst church ever. Thank you for being with us. Please do consider liking, rating, and subscribing. Please do join us next time when I think we'll be looking at the story of Abraham. That's the next stop in the narrative lectionary anyway. Till next time on Worst Church Ever, and thanks again for being with us.